0: a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure and now with this week's episode your host clinical psychologist dr nazanine moali welcome to episode 43 of sexology podcast i'm your host dr nazanine moali i hope you're having a fantastic week i'm doing this recording on monday morning right before my first client walking to my door and I just finished two day experiential sexology workshop with Dr. Patty Britton in LA. The workshop name was Sexual Attitude Reassessment and Restructuring commonly known as SAR and this is a necessary training for clinicians and educators who would like to get uh, further certification for sex therapy. And I'm so glad it's required because the goal is to help individuals challenge their own sexual values, attitude and beliefs. And I think just it is if you want to work in this field, you need to be aware of your own attitude and reactions around different sexualities and different expressions as part of his training dr Britton invited a group of transgender speakers it was fascinating to hear them talk about their own personal stories and their biases and challenges they experienced through their journey of discovering their own gender identity and they talked about variety and diversity even among Uh, transgender communities and it was heartbreaking for me honestly to hear their stories and I attended many of these panels and I feel there are so many myths and misconceptions when it comes around sexual identity and uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and unless people fit this very very narrow description People have very low tolerance about hearing who they are, and it was just painful to see and that's why I wanted to talk and educate more people about these topics and that's why I invited back Dr. Lisa Wade to join us today to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation. We had a similar conversation early on and earliest, uh, one of the earlier episode, but I think it's just such an important topic that I decided to have another episode on that. Dr. Lisa Wade was our guest in episode four, where she talked about her new book, American Hookup, which is one of the most downloaded episodes in this podcast. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode, Dr. Lisa Wade is an associate professor of sociology at Occidental College. Before receiving her PhD in sociology at the University of Wisconsin Madison, Dr. Wade earned a master's degree in human sexuality from NYU and a bachelor's in philosophy from University of California, Santa Barbara. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lisa Wade. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Lisa Waite in our show. She was our guest a few months ago, and she talked about hookup culture, and I know many of you guys love that show. So if you haven't checked it out, please go back and uh, listen to that episode. Dr. Wade, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So early during the introduction, I was sharing with our audience how I feel we didn't have so far, we didn't have enough shows talking about gender diversity and sexual orientation. And one of the reasons, and this is where I feel very vulnerable sharing that, but I feel that's not necessarily the area that I have extensive training and research on. And I'm so grateful that you accepted my invitation to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's start with talking about what is the difference between sex and gender. Well,
1: so traditionally, we've used the word sex to try to reference the fact that we are a species that reproduces sexually instead of asexually. So, uh, you know, way, way, way back in evolution, uh, the first living creatures would simply clone themselves, and that's how they reproduced. But uh, this wasn't very adaptive genetically because uh, they didn't have any genetic diversity or they had less genetic diversity than they could. And so if some kind of threat came along, they maybe were less adaptive. And so sexual reproduction, biologists believe, uh, evolved because it allowed us to mix up our genes more more often and so create more genetic diversity such that we, our species were more robust. Uh, when we were faced with threats. And so that's why sexual reproduction is so common in in all kinds of species today. So when we talk about sex, we're really just talking about the fact that one type of person in the human species actually gestates the next life and the other type of person generally just mixes up the genes uh, through sexual reproduction. Uh, Gender is basically everything else that we layer onto and make meaningful about our sexual body parts. So everything from the idea that it's more feminine to be emotional, and especially um, emotions other than anger or rage, uh, the idea that pink is feminine and blue is masculine, the idea that women are more interested in love and men more interested in sex, Pants versus skirts. I mean, you name it. All of the things that we add up to, that we sort of layer onto this idea of sexual body parts, uh, would count as gender.
0: So, one thing that I often hear that people confuse is the relationship between gender identity and sexual orientation. Sometimes people use it; they think it's the same thing. So, help us understand what is it different and what's the relationship between those two.
1: Sure. So. There's, there's no relationship is the answer. Um, a person can feel all kinds of ways about their bodies and they can feel all kinds of ways about how they like to, to perform their gender identity. So a person can feel perfectly comfortable in whatever, with whatever sexual body parts they have. And then layered on top of that, they might perform um, identities that are a mix of masculinity or femininity or a different mix of masculinity or femininity or more masculine or feminine. Um, How, how we sort of perform our gender identities, how we mix up masculinity and femininity into Our personalities and our interests and our behaviors, that is all very flexible, it turns out. And then who we actually are sexually attracted to is an entirely different thing that actually has no relationship to either what sexual body parts we have necessarily or um, how we perform our gender identity.
0: So, what are some of the external, internal factors that you think it to influence our gender identity?
1: Well, you know. What we know about biology is that our bodies are very responsive to our social environments. We are a social species biologically, right? It is natural for us to be social. So all all our body is designed to to sort of process social cues, um, interpret our social environment, respond to our social opportunities. So it's really it's really sort of a a wrong question to ask like what about this is biological and what about this is social because it's always both and it's it's not not even just like it's 50% biological and 50% social or even 80-20 or 20-80 it's not even that it's that we literally are always this cyclical um, process of, of both of those things so um, whether or not our our, our sexual, our sexual bodies are, are created by our particular genetic code at the at the very very beginning of our lives. But after that, uh, everything is kind of up in the air, and it depends a lot on what we encounter. So, if, for example, being a masculine woman or a feminine man is something that's possible in your social environment, then it's much more likely that you may end up being that way and feeling comfortable in that kind of skin. And similarly, if it's possible to to actually recognize sexual feelings for one sex or the other, uh, you're much more likely to actually recognize that. So even our sexual orientations are probably a bit more fluid than we have been giving them credit for.
0: Right. And I love when you mention that there is not necessarily a a common, like, you know, exact relationship between nature and nurture because people are kind of thinking about it all the time. At least I see it in my practice that parents coming in and they say, like, you know, my daughter or my son, they're not, uh, they're identifying, they're not cisgender. Is it because of the parenting I did? Is this because of this and that? And what I'm hearing is, like, we don't know, and just number of reasons, and part of it could be biological, part of it could be nurture, nature, and all of those factors can contribute.
1: Yeah, we don't know, but we can be pretty sure that Everything is both biological and social. <laughs> so we can be pretty sure because we, we, it's always social because our bodies exist in a social environment and they're designed to respond to social cues. And it's always biological because we have bodies. We, we only exist in the world in our bodies. So everything that happens to us has to happen to our body. So yeah, it's, it, w- the only thing we can know for sure is that it's both of those things all the time?
0: So there are different terms that people are using as far as what in order to identify their gender identity. So what does it mean when someone identify as gender nonconforming?
1: Yeah, so gender non-conforming would be a person who, for whatever reason, doesn't adhere to the gender binary. And the gender binary is this very rigid idea that whatever genitals you're born with determines whether or not you identify as male or female and whether or not you act in a masculine or feminine way and then who you are sexually attracted to. So the gender binary presumes that whatever your sex is, that determines and is always perfectly correlated with how you how you identify, that you identify as male or female, how comfortable you are in your body, but also your personality and what you're good or bad at in terms of cognitive abilities and um, and interests. and then further on, f- further, that that if you are born with male genitalia, you'll be attracted only to people with female and vice versa. So that's the gender binary. It's just this very, very rigid idea that there's two and only two sexes. And once we know what genitals you have, we pretty much know everything else about you. Um, <laughs> that's, that's actually, in cross-cultural and historical perspective, a really unusually strict way of thinking about sex and gender and sexual identity. Um, and so, but that, that, that's the one we've been using, um, at least since the Europeans colonized this continent, And so um, someone who's gender nonconforming is just someone who looks at that very, very strict set of rules and says that that doesn't apply to them necessarily.
0: Right. And I, and, and I li- really like when you talk about how, like, historically people want to define one based on the genital that they were born with. And I know with intersex, the argument that I used to hear from urologists was that if they keep both genitals, then how would they know how to parent their children, which is, sounds like very odd, but it, it just, it baffled me that, like, the physician used to make the, that decision for the person. Yeah,
1: I mean the fact that we feel like we need to know whether or not our child is male or female to know how to parent them is a it, it is symptomatic of that gender binary because theoretically we want all of our children to be you know um, hardworking and kind and um, ambitious and nurturing and you know communication and mathematics <laughs> theoretically we'd like them all to be all those things but in practice it. We use sex as a guiding tool, a way in in which to know how to interact both with our children and each other. And that's all symptomatic of this gender binary ideology that we live with.
0: Right. And some other thing that makes me kind of surprised is how people think if you're a cisgender person, you're more capable. And then... They do all this kind of uh, discrimination for transgenders, and I, we recently heard about military exclusion. So, what's your thoughts on that? Well,
1: usually when social rules are enforced in an aggressive way, it reflects some kind of desire to preserve power. So, to back up a second, in order to have inequality between two groups, you need two groups, right? And those right. two groups um, have to be somehow distinguished from one another in a socially meaningful way. You just can't have inequality with only one group.
0: <laughs> that is That's, so fascinating. I never thought about it that way.
1: Yeah, you, you, you need uh, what we call distinction, a mm-hmm. distinction between two types of people if you're going to put one type of person above the other and one below. So whenever you see really aggressive efforts to maintain distinction. Whenever someone says, no, um, this kind of person must be that way, and this other kind of person must be this other way, sometimes it can masquerade as just wanting to preserve difference. But difference is almost always used as a platform to establish inequality. And so we should always be really suspicious of those efforts to control people and keep them in their boxes. If people who were born with certain genitals stopped identifying as certain sexes, stopped behaving in certain gendered ways and stopped having sex with the people we thought they were supposed to be having sex with, then we would really start to see the entire gender binary fall to pieces. And the binary is a double, right? It's two types. And if the binary falls to pieces, then we can no longer have any basis on which to think that people with one genitals is somehow better at some things than people with the other.
0: Right. And I love when you mentioned that, you know, it's part of trying to preserve control and kind of reminds me of how, even in some culture, even now that women, because of their gender, they were like, they were considered less than, and now it's been shifted toward like trans people and it's just fascinating.
1: Yeah, because so there's the two things, right? First, we need to keep reminding we 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 need to keep the reminders going that somehow women are less than men somehow we are less likable that we're less good at certain at the things in life that are rewarded right we're less we're less talented at the things that deserve compensation and esteem right that, that kind of thing is going on all the time but that's only the that's the stage two of maintaining inequality. The stage two is keeping everyone believing that there's such a such a thing as men and women and that men and women are meaningful categories.
0: Right. And I've, I'm familiar with a number of different identity development models. Which one do you uh, recommend as like a, that's that you find helpful for like identifying stages of development of sexual minorities? How do you got to go about that?
1: Well, if I was going to give advice to just your everyday person out there in the world trying to navigate this uh, sort of explosion of different types of people around gender and sexual orientation, I would just recommend that people um, defer to whatever the other person says. So I don't think it's really important that our average, you know, in our daily lives, we we have a have some like particular idea of how people, um, become to be who they are. But I think what's, what's really important is just remembering that anything is possible and everything is okay. And so it's just best to kind of not be particularly invested in how other people behave or whether or not their genitals match, uh, the color of, of shirt they're wearing, (laughs) um, and just sort of let other people take the lead in defining themselves for you.
0: Right. And one thing that I noticed that's very challenging, and at least as like as I was going through my training, I noticed that there are many people are interested and curious to learn more about these topics. And it's just because of the discrimination and the hate and all the negativity around these topics, it's just like people don't know how to address and find resources and information about this topic, at least I think for Therapists, it's important because we see range of different clients and for competency, it's important to be able to have understanding of one's development and also their psyche. So what would be the good kind of resource for when people want to learn more about gender identity and sexual orientation? I mean, there's,
1: I, I, I don't have a particular website that I would share, but there's tons of information out there. You know, I think, I think, Two, a lot of people are very concerned that somehow if they don't respond correctly, especially if it's their children or someone that they love, that um, that they're going to somehow hurt someone. And really, the only way you can hurt someone is by telling them that they're wrong or bad. But Just validating where they're at, uh, being tolerant as they try to figure it out, uh, knowing that Wherever they settle in terms of their identity and their, the performance of their identity, it might change, too. And that, that's got to be all right with us as well. Um, accepting fluidity in people's gender performances and identities and sexual orientations. You know, even if one's a therapist dealing with a client, I think sometimes it's important just to give permission. And just to say, you know, wherever you're at with your identity and how all these pieces are coming together is fine. And if if you're going somewhere else, that's fine. And if once you arrive there, you decide to end up somewhere even further away, that's fine, too.
0: (laughs) I think, like,
1: just suggesting that none of this is really that important at all. Right. It's the most important thing to do.
0: And you mentioned about parenting, and I think in a society that's filled with hatred and suspicious and negativity again, for like people who are like sexual non confirming, I know that in some areas, in some countries, children can get bullied and can be very dangerous and scary. So how can they how can the parents support their children? when they find that they're not necessarily conforming to a gender binary?
1: I think that's a really a really good question and a really hard thing for parents to deal with. And so sometimes parents respond by trying to push their child to be more gender conforming. And that almost never insofar as that works, it only works by suppressing by by forcing a child to suppress to suppress a part of themselves and making them feel bad about that part of them. So if I think a parent, it's very real. This concern with bullying is very real. And I think parents should be really, really open with their children and say, who you are is beautiful and I love it. And I don't want you to be any different. But the world isn't a fair place. And there may be spaces in which you get to express different parts of yourself more easily than others. And let's talk about what that looks like. But, in, but always reiterating that like at home with us, you know, whoever you are is wonderful and we accept you completely. Um, that sort of balance would be what I recommend as opposed to trying to protect your child by trying to control how they feel about themselves.
0: Right. And I I find that when people kind of, when they want to change their child because of their fear, I know, I understand, as you mentioned, it just can be very real in some part of cultures and countries. So it's important to convey that as a parent, as a primary caregiver, you accept them, as you mentioned, as who they are, and they can talk about it, they can explore it. And I love that you kind of talk about kind of expressing other part of their personality rather than presenting at someone that they're not.
1: I mean, we do that in our daily lives all the time, right? We have a, I mean, I have a Lisa Wade at the bar with my girlfriends and oh. I have a Lisa Wade on a first date and I have a Lisa Wade <laughs> that I'm performing right now and I have a Lisa Wade that goes to visit my grandmother on Thanksgiving, right? So it's okay. I think it's okay to talk about how We bring out different parts of our personalities in different circumstances, and that's not necessarily bad. I do think that parents have a much, much easier time accepting girls who deviate from feminine stereotypes than boys that deviate from masculine ones. And this is about inequality, right? It's about the idea that it's better to be masculine than feminine. And so um, when our girls do masculinity, we think that's kind of great. But when our boys do femininity, we see them sort of demeaning themselves and doing something that's stigmatized. And so I think one way for parents to get more comfortable with the the harder side of that, boys doing femininity, was to remember that like, most parents would be pretty comfortable with their girls wanting to play with trucks or join sports or major in physics. And if that's true, then we should be equally comfortable with boys who want to play with dolls or um, join the cheerleading squad or major in education. You know, we we need to push ourselves as parents to make sure we're not reproducing these preconceived ideas about what's better and worse based on gender.
0: Right, and I think you brought an excellent point about girls being okay for, like, doing, like, boy kind of things. And I all the time hear people encourage it that, like, for example, one of my friends, she has two daughters and said, oh, I have a daughter and the son and she's that great. So kind of mm. thinking because she's great in math, then she's like, you know, they kind of the way they use it as a positive way to present their daughter. And I can see with, with the boys that it would be derogatory to say like, mm. you know, I have a daughter instead of saying the son. And that's very interesting
1: hmm. Yeah, it's, it's ubiquitous. And you know, it's a really important type of gender inequality that really doesn't get talked about very much. We talk about valuing men over women and how that's wrong. You know, it's wrong to think that, that the female sex is somehow inferior to the male sex. And we kind of recognize that these days. But this idea that it's better to be masculine than feminine is still really, really powerful. And in fact, we call this androcentrism this idea that masculinity and masculine people are better than femininity and feminine people and it's been getting worse and worse and worse since the 1950s we are more androcentric more prejudiced against feminine people than we have ever been
0: that's so interesting why do you think that's a, that's that's happening it you know <laughs> power has a way
1: of co-opting social movements and finding ways to wiggle through social change so that even as we try to improve the world, it, it, it sort of preserves itself. And so we, you know, feminists of the 1970s, they, they wanted uh, women to be able to have access to the valued spheres in life. And so the way, they, the way, the way that we tr- decided that women would be able to do that was to give them access to male spheres and masculine characteristics. But we never stopped treating them like women and expecting them to be feminine. So instead of being prejudiced against female bodies, we've just decided that we're going to be prejudiced against feminine people. And that has the consequence of both preserving, preserving prejudice against women as, as a societal norm, but also maintaining prejudice against feminine men. And by, by stigmatizing feminine men, we push men to perform masculinity and to stay neatly on the side of the masculine binary. And that is how we preserve distinction between men and women, the same distinction that it allows us to preserve
0: inequality. That is so fascinating. And I think the challenge definitely, again in my culture, I noticed that how being feminine was kind of considered negative quality, kind of being then, then you're not maybe competent in the workforce. So in order to succeed, then you have to try to present more masculine. But I think the part of challenges also comes from women as well. So we kind of somehow internalize that, Feminine quality means that I'm not capable. And also they, sometimes at least that might, that's my experience that people tend to kind of not even consider their colleague women toward other women when they're more feminine. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, when I talk about those of us who uphold these distinctions and buy into inequality, that's everybody. And even those of us who are, Uh, very, very concerned with inequality and and consider it, you know, part of our life's work to try to undermine these things, we still carry, most of us still carry implicit biases that we don't even have conscious access to. So we're, we're, we all internalize whatever biases our society has, like sort of sends sends to us. I mean, remember when we talked about how we're always both biological and social, like those social inequalities become embedded in our bodies. We have hormonal responses in in response to these these, um, inequalities. We have have cognitive arrangements in our brains that reproduce these inequalities, right? It's all of us. And and you'll see a lot of women who in response to this, they think, well, the best way um, for me to manage this this uh, male-dominated, um, masculine preferred society is to try to be as male or masculine as I can be, and they're not wrong. That that's a really smart way to try to get ahead as a woman in America today, but it's not the same thing as undermining gender inequality. In fact, it just re- reaffirms it by by val- valuing and seeking to seeking to pursue male pursuits and, and and masculine characteristics.
0: I love this conversation because it's very different. And as a psychologist, I often see things like one-to-one. And I love it when I hear about bigger picture and what's going on in society and how it impacts us as individuals. So thank you for sharing those great input and information. So sure. again, I loved your book. And again, I think I follow you on social media and I pretty much start liking everything. <laughs> it's like, oh, this, is, <laughs> this looks nice too. So if people want to contact you, they want to check out your materials, what would be the best way of connecting with you?
1: Well, uh, my website is lisa-wade.com. So that's really easy. And if you Google my name, it most everything will come right up. And I'm happy to interact with people on, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram All of that is, I'm I'm on all all those platforms.
0: Awesome. And I'll make sure that I put the information about the website and your social media in our show notes. So if you want to get contact, get in contact with Dr. Wade, you can check the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. This was so helpful and lovely. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad. It was great. Have a great day. I hope my interview with Dr. Wade gave you more insights on the topic of gender identity and sexual orientation. I know this is a vast area and I'm planning to have further episodes on this topic, but I hope it gave you a good, this interview gave you a good introduction to exploring your your own sexual orientation and gender identity, but also kind of examining uh, your own discriminations and reactions to individuals who are different than you. If you like listening to this podcast, it means a lot to me. If you take a second and write us an honest review, on Apple podcast or Stitchers, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit dot